Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Lord, open our hearts. Lead us on in you. Speak through me and speak into all our hearts, Lord Jesus, and we will say thank you. Amen? Please be seated. We are continuing our series in Life Together. I actually am doing another part uh, of chapter one in this book, and there's the creed. Um, and and I, I'm glad I read it. You know, when I was in college, I had um, a small, uh, like a college small group. Um, oh, I'm going the wrong way, you guys. It's, it's operator error. It's not them. It's me. Don't look at them. Tell, just go, pastor is a fool. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so in college, I, I'm, I'm like a junior or senior in college, and, and uh, we have this Christian fellowship going on, and I'm in leadership in the Christian fellowship, and, and the, uh, a young freshman came in, and she attended a couple times, and she's like, you know, I just don't like it. She's kind of complaining, and, and you know what I realized? She wanted our college group to be like her, her youth group, and she was like, oh, it's not right, because you don't do this, and it's not that, and how, you know, and, and it, and I was like, wow, this is interesting. And I, I wish I had read Bonhoeffer. Be, because when we come into groups with a preconceived idea and try to push it on the group, we can actually hurt the group and not help it. And, and I've kind of fostered this un, unknowingly, stupidly, through the years. When people leave Community of Hope and they move away to another city, they'll go, I can't find a Community of Hope. I want to find a church just like Community of Hope, and I can't find one. Why? Because they're going there, and they're saying, well, it's not, this can't be right. They don't do this, right? They don't, you know, and, you know, the pastor doesn't make mistakes all the time, you know, and, and they're trying to find one just like Community of Hope, and they can't, and I'd be like, yeah, sorry, but you know what I should say is just find one that's a little bit close, find one that, that's preaching the word that you're comfortable with. And then start giving thanks and being a community of hope there, right? Be the, the, the change that you want it to be. Like, and, and see what happens in your midst. You can, you can do that, right? And, 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 or else you're just going to be critical. Bonhoeffer says in chapter 1, he says, Innumerable times the whole Christian community has broken down because it's sprung from a wish dream. I almost put the German word up there. The serious Christian sets down for the first time in the Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. So it's like this is what church is like. I know and I'm going to make it happen. And if it's not that way, I am going to complain all about church. And he says, "But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. I read this article, it was in Christianity Today, and he said, Bonhoeffer convinced me 
to abandon my dream. And, and this guy had gone to seminary. He had, um, he had like, like been trained for ministry. And when he got out of seminary, he joined a larger church. And his job was actually to, to lead the college and career age group. And he said, I tried everything. There were tons of people that age at church, but I couldn't get anybody to come. I gave away T-shirts, free pizza. He's like, nothing worked. I just had this really small group going. And finally, I just got discouraged and got like a real job. I mean, and got a different job. And then, um, and he said, but I felt bad because I wasn't using, you know, all this uh, debt I had occurred. I mean, I wasn't using the education that I had occurred all this debt for, so I started a Bible study in the basement of my in-law's house. And he said, you know, he's doing this Bible study, but he goes, I, I, I didn't like it because I wanted to go somewhere adventurous. I wanted to build something great. I wanted to achieve something impactful for the kingdom. After all, I had spent the last decade collecting bits and pieces of training experiences which form my vision of church. And I didn't recognize any, uh, any of that vision in these Sunday evening basement services. I was hesitant to even call it church. My vision had become my expectation and my discouragement. He, he then read Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer basically just punched him in the nose, so to speak. And he started realizing, wait a minute, these are the people that God's given me to love. This is the community. And now he's part-time uh, pastor. They have a building. They have 60, not a building, they rent a, a building, and they have 60 people attending. And, and he is shepherding the group that God has given him, and he's given up on his grandiose dreams that he tried to put on the church, and he blames Bonhoeffer for his success. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And this was his guy. And you know, pastors could come into a church and go, hey, this is my dream for the church, for the community. Get in line or get out, right? And, and then all of a sudden, we're, we're treating people like, like cogs in a wheel instead of just loving the people that God has placed in our lives. This is what Bonhoeffer is saying. Don't ruin the community by your vision. You know, the vision of, of church is the image of Christ. And, and every church is going to take on a little different. And so coming in and imposing this thing on it, um, I, I've, I've heard pastors talk about the, the friends they've had to, to lose and the, the congregational members that had to leave in order to get better ones, Right? In order to get the congregation member 2.0, right? The friends, why? Because it's all about their vision and their dream. And this line really stuck with me. He said, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by great disillusionment. And look who with, with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. 
I think one of the best pictures in the Bible of disillusionment is this relationship between uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. You guys kind of know the story, right? Jacob, bit of a swindler, right? He, he, he tricks his dad into giving him the blessing. Remember, puts like fur on his arms. He steals the blessing from Esau. He, he, he fears Esau, so his mom's like, go, go with the relatives, run and hide. So he goes, runs and hides. And who does he meet? He meets uh, Leah and Rachel. And Rachel is beautiful, and Leah's not so beautiful. And he falls in love with Rachel. And the Bible says this, now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said to the dad, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than any other man. Stay with me. Don't you love that? Can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Well, you seem better than the other guy. So yeah, go ahead, take her. You know, it's so funny. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and, and seems to him but a few days because of his love for her. I mean, this dude is head over heels for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is complete that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought him, her to him. And Jacob went into her. And Laban also gave his maid, Zilpah, to his daughter, Leah, as a maid. What's going on here? Big party, maybe a lot of drinking, darkness, possibly lots of veils. Sneaks in the less attractive older daughter in the bed of the guy that he, that, that he, he didn't work for her. He's like, I worked for this one, and I, I, I want this one. Sneaks her in at night, and here is the disillusionment. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. It's like, what in the world? Who are you? How are you here? Can you, you imagine? And he said to Laban, what is this you've done for me? Was it not Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? You know, I have to wonder if this deception wasn't ringing any bells for Jacob. I mean, you think about it. Oh, I deceived my dad. I, I deceived my dad, and now I, oh, you got to wonder if he, it wasn't doing something in him. But Laban said, it's not our practice and our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of, with this one, and I'll give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. That keeps really sticking it to him, isn't he? One author, Derek Kidner, wrote this. He said, in the morning, behold, it's Leah, is a miniature of our disillusionments from Eden onward. Like all of life promises something, but never delivers what it promises. And I think Tim Keller said this, you're never going to lead a wise life until you understand that. Until you understand that all of life is you go to bed with Rachel and you wake up with Leah. All of life overpromises and underdelivers. C.S. Lewis said this, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There's all sorts of things in this world 
in this world that offers to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings, which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He's saying all of our desires on this earth fulfill for a little bit, overpromise but underdeliver. And you know what it's like. Maybe you got a new job and you're like, this job is going to be so much better than that job. But somewhere along the line in that job, you say, I really wanted this. Right? You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Or, 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 or maybe anybody who's married, it's like you have all these dreams and this stuff about marriage. But then somewhere along the line, you're like, wow, it, it didn't live up to my expectations. And, and this is what Lewis is talking about. He's like, hey, the best of marriages don't live up to the promise that you had at first. And Bonhoeffer would say, disillusionment is a gift of grace. What? Disillusionment is a gift of grace. He says it's good to be disillusioned with the church. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that overcome us like a dream. God is not a God of emotions, but a God of truth. I choke on that because I think emotions come from God, but I, I, in a second, I think you'll get it down deep in your heart and you'll be like, I agree with him. God is not the God of emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight because, I mean, and begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Now, how can I make this clear to you? Well, if you're not married, take my word for it. When I do premarital counseling, I'll say to couples, listen, when you don't feel love for one another, that's when true love sets in. And a lot of them say, oh, pastor, that will never happen to me. You know, that never happens to us. And, you know, and I pray it doesn't happen. But for most relationships, you come to a point where you're like, well, I don't, I don't have a lot of feeling. I don't have a lot of emotion. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, I don't think was mushy-gushy about us. In the garden, he, he, he wasn't mushy-gushy about it. But, but he went to the cross out of love. And you and I, we say, yeah, maybe the, I don't have emotions right now, but love is a decision. Love is a choice. Love is a commitment. That's what Bonhoeffer's talking about. Don't mistake the wonderful feelings we get at times being together with the very substance of fellowship. Because the substance of fellowship, just like the substance of marriage, is based on truth more than emotions. I think emotions are like the froth on a beer, right? They're not the beer. They're the froth. You shake the beer, the froth comes back. You do the things in relationships and in church to get the emotions. You go on a retreat and you get to know each other and you're like high as a kite. I mean, it feels great. Or you know, you do, like you, in marriage, you, you, you do the things that, that, that minister to your marriage and make you feel close. You're like, yeah, I have all the froth, but don't substitute it for the truth. The truth is love is a decision. Love is a choice. 
Church is a decision. Church is a choice. So there's disillusionment in marriage relationships, romantic relationships that are good for the relationship. There's disillusionment in, in the church that's good for the church. There's even disillusionment in our relationship with God that actually could be good for our relationship with God. Some years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And in it, he, he writes this. He says, even back then, I was searching for hard evidence as an alternative to faith. He's like, I was looking for something that would give me evidence about God. And, and he said, I, I thought I found it. On television, I was flipping through the channels. While uh, randomly flipping through the dial, I came across this mass healing service conducted by Catherine Kuhlman. And I watched for a few minutes as she brought various people upon the stage, interviewed them. Each one told an amazing story of supernatural healing, cancer, heart conditions, paralysis, etc. As I watched the program, my doubts gradually melted away. At last, I found something real and tangible. Kuhlman asked the musicians to play her favorite song, He Touched Me. And he goes, and that's what I needed, a touch, a personal touch from God. And he said, she came to the town, the state, should I say, near my state, and I blew off my college courses just to go see her. And I went, and the atmosphere was unbelievable. Organ music in the background, murmuring people, praying aloud, and also in strange tongues. And every few minutes, a happy interruption when someone would say, I'm healed. And he said, one person made a deep impression upon me. It was a man from Milwaukee. He was carried in on a stretcher. And when he walked, yes, walked on stage, we all cheered wildly. He told us he was a physician, and I was even more impressed. And he had incurable lung cancer. He said the doctors gave him six months to live, but now tonight he believed God had healed him. He was walking for the first time in months. He felt great. Praise God, I wrote down the man. I wrote down the man's name and practically floated out of the meeting. I had never had such certainty of faith, Yancey wrote. My search was over. I had seen proof of the living God in those people on the stage. If I could have a more tangible, I couldn't even have a more tangible miracle than what I found there. And then he said, you know, I, a week went by and I thought, I'm going to contact that doctor, the one I had seen at the meeting. So back in the day, you had to call directory assistance. And it was like a phone operator who had a, 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 a white pages and there was a big book <laughs> with lots of names and stuff, phone numbers in it. So you called this other area and you got somebody's phone number. And then you paid a lot more money to make that long-distance phone call. And so he did that, and he got the physician's number, dialed in, and a woman answered, answered the phone. He said, hey, may I please speak to Dr. You know, S? And there was this long pause, a very long pause. And then she says, who are you? He said, I figured she was screening calls. So I gave her my name and told her I admired the doctor and wanted to talk to him ever since the Catherine Kuhlman meeting. She'd be, I had been very moved by his story. And then there was a long silence again. And then she spoke in a flat voice, slowly. My husband is dead. 
Just that one sentence, nothing more, and hung up. I can't tell you how devastated it was. He goes, I was wasted. I staggered into the next room where my sister was sitting. Richard, what's wrong? She asked. Are you all right? No, I was not all right, but I couldn't talk about it. I was crying. My mother and my sister tried to pry an explanation out of me, I, I, but I couldn't tell them. For me, the certainty I had staked my life on had died with that phone call. A flame had flared bright for one fine, shining week and then gone dark. And then he wrote, the transforming moment in Christian conversion comes when we realize that even God has left us. We then discover it was not God, but our image of God that has abandoned us. This frees us to discover more of the mystery of God than we knew. Only then is change possible. Sometimes I talk to people who don't believe in God, and I'll say, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? Because there is an image of God. Many times it isn't the true God. And it's good to begin a conversation that way. And this guy had a picture. He was looking for something tangible. You know, I believe God heals. I believe he does miracles. And I've seen them. And yet our faith is in God, not in the miracles, not, not in those kind of things. Our faith is in him. And some people we pray for die. And some people we pray for get better. But our faith is in God, and disillusionment, even in God, as Yancey would say, is a transforming moment. We also get disillusioned with ourselves. You know, many times we begin the Christian life, and, and we're going to be like Jesus. I knew I was going to be like Jesus. All those other people, they don't try hard enough, right? They don't read their Bible hard enough. They don't pray. They don't worship. They don't, you know, like, like I, I was going to be like Jesus, and I knew I could, and, and, and I didn't even understand what C.S. Lewis is talking about back then, but it happened in my life, and I needed to become disillusioned with me. Lewis says this, now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying very hard, I'm sorry, trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try Whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is the road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it's not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads us to the vital moment at which we turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. Isn't that beautiful? I thought of that on Tuesday, when, uh, Wednesday, when uh, we had Bill's memorial service. And uh, a week ago, Tuesday, I was with Bill, and we were talking about what he would like at his uh, service. And I said, Bill, is there a hymn? He goes, Rock of Ages. And I had remembered reading... Uh, Luther, who talked about, you know, many times when people are in difficulty, trouble, and on their deathbed, they think only about their active righteousness. Like, God, I haven't done enough. I watch too much TV. I haven't been, right? Like, and they're thinking, I'm, I'm a failure, and they need to hear the gospel. But here's Bill, truly on his deathbed, 
What hymn is in your heart? Rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood flow from wounded side which flowed. I'm sorry, from thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin a double cure, water and blood. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not a labor of my hand can fulfill the law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save me, thou alone. When we are disillusioned with ourselves, we come to know the rock of ages. And the song becomes dear in our hearts. Verse 4 While I draw this fleeting breath, while my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So what happens most of the time when we're disillusioned? Where does our heart go? What What do we do? How do we respond to disillusionment? Bonhoeffer would say this, God hates visionary dreamers. Because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of the community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, set up on his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he's the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things don't go his way, he calls his effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first the accuser of the brethren. It's your fault my dream didn't. I had the dream and you didn't make it happen, or an accuser of God. God, you gave me, and why didn't this happen? And then, despairingly, an accuser of himself. This is what happens when we get the disillusioned. I think it was Lewis who said this. We, we blame others. We blame other people. I've seen it in marriage. If I had just married a different person, I'd be happy, right? Right? Because, of course, they hold the keys to your happiness, not you. If I had just done, like, and, and people can live in this disillusionment and start just living with this blame over and over and over, and they go over it in their heads. And, and sometimes if I just had a different job, I'd be happy. A lot of times people go to a different job, but they got Limburger cheese under their nose, and it smells the same as the first job because you're there, Right? The blame is the language of addiction. I just need a better drug. I just need an, another, another thing. I need, I need, and, and, and you see people who go from relationship to relationship to relationship because it's always their fault. Or from church to church to church. Now, there's legitimate reasons to, to go to a different church, but, but a lot of times it's all, there's all this blame that goes on. And, and if it's not somebody who blames themse- uh, the other person... A lot of people blame themselves. Uh, you know, my husband wouldn't run around on me if I was a better spouse. You know, if I, just, if I just did a little more, he would love me more. 
If I just did, right, they blame themselves. You, you know, I know my company's failing, and it's my fault, right? It may not be your fault, right? But, but you blame yourself, and that's the language of depression, right? De depression, when, when you're disillusioned and you start blaming yourself, it leads to depression. Other people comfort themselves when they're disillusioned with cynicism. Life stinks, then you die. If I have no expectations or less expectations of you, you can't hurt me. I'm impenetrable because I don't expect anything from you. I, don't, I, I know you're only going to hurt me, right? Like, like cynicism, you know. Uh, it, it, and, and I know that there are people here who have rested in cynicism. I've seen marriages stay together who are just cynical of one another. Not happy, cynical. But this is where we go because life always overpromises and underdelivers. What do you do with it? Well, Lewis said, if I find within myself uh, desires that will never be fulfilled on this earth, I must be made for another place. Heaven. Heaven. I think Henry Nouwen used to say something like this. We may have good stuff going on here, but really anything good is just a picture of heaven. It's just a, a taste of, of heaven. We were made for heaven. So what's the answer? What's the answer? You know what Bonhoeffer would say? Well, before I tell you that, I'll, I'll say the answer is found in the rest of this passage. Jacob then did and completed his week with uh, Leah. Man, what was that like? What is it like to be Leah? Yeah, I've got a week until I get what I really want. I mean, what did she feel like? You know, like, like chattel, like, 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 I mean, I, man, yeah. Uh, boy, totally unloved. And Laban gave, uh, so Laban then gave his daughter Rachel as his wife and the maid to his daughter. So Rachel uh, as her maid, I'm sorry, Rachel, yeah, as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Do you see what she's doing? Look, I made you a baby. Now you're going to love me, won't you? Rachel can't give you this. And then she conceived again and bore a son and because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved, he has therefore given me this son. It, and so she named him Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son. Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And she named him Levi. Do you see what's going on? Like she's trying so, so hard to, to get the affection from something on this earth, from her husband. And she's saying, if I can only get this affection, I'll be satisfied. If I can only get him to love me, I'll be satisfied. I'm disillusioned, and the answer to my disillusionment is winning the affection of that man. And finally, she conceives number four. 
and bore a son. And now, look at how her story changed. This time, I'll praise the Lord, Yahweh. Therefore, she named him Judah and stopped bearing children. Do you see finally what she said? No, I, I've been looking all along in the wrong place. I hold the keys to my own happiness, and I will thank God for this baby. Before, God was just a means to an end. God, you gave me this so I can get this, and this never came. It just gave her more of an unfulfilled heart, and finally she's like, you know what? I'm going to give praise and thanks to God for this child. It's beautiful. And Bonhoeffer says, what do we do? We can be thankful. When you're disillusioned, you can start giving thanks. You know what? The only kind of gifts you're going to get in this world are imperfect gifts because you're imperfect, and I'm imperfect. We are imperfect gifts to one another, and we need to learn to give thanks to God for his imperfect gifts. We thank God for giving us brethren who, who live by his call, by his forgiveness, his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. Spouses, write that down. God, we do not complain about what God does not give us. Rather, we give thanks to God for what he does give us daily. Anybody ever try this? It, it turns you around, doesn't it? You're like, what, what am I doing inside my heart right now? Stop it. Start giving thanks. Lord, thanks for warm water on cold days, right? Thanks for good coffee, right? Thank, like, you can, you can just start giving thanks for the internal combustion engine, right? I start my car, it, like, runs, it heats up. You know, it's like, you, you, like there's so many things. And you come to church. Church is not perfect, but you can go, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this, and thank you for that, and thank you for, right? I mean, there, there's something beautiful that happens when we begin to be thankful. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, I, Bonhoeffer is beautiful in this because this is not a natural perspective. You look out and there's sin, and you're getting hurt by sin, you're getting hurt by other people, even when there's sin and misunderstanding whew, in the communal life. Is not the sinning brother still a brother? Of uh, uh, whom too I stand under the word of Christ. So we're, we're both, we're in the family under God's word. Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to thank God that both of us may live in the forgiveness, forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? This person is sinning, maybe hurting you. Lord, thank you that both of us live in your forgiving love. Is that not a cool perspective? But he doesn't stop there. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother or sister becomes incomparably beneficial because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words or deeds. You're not promise keepers. But only by the one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. So he's like taking something that truly is sin, truly hurts, truly hurts community, misunderstanding sin. 
He's going, hey, let me tell you one way to see it. See it as an opportunity for true fellowship, not of the saints, but as the sinners. And include yourself in that camp too. And give thanks to God for that. That's transforming. And then he sends, says this, and I'll end with it. Christian community is like the Christian sanctification. It's a gift of God, which we cannot claim. Sanctification, a gift. Paul says, I worked harder than any others, but not me, but the Spirit working in me. You're like, oh. He's, he's, he's telling them what happened, but he's, you know how it happened? The Spirit worked that in me. It's a gift from God, which we cannot claim. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship, of our sanctification. We may appear weak. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Is that not beautiful? Just as Christians should not be constantly feeling his spiritual pulse, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to constantly taking its temperature. You know, this is, it, this is, there's a lot of wisdom in this, isn't there? How are you doing spiritually? You keep looking at yourself and how you're doing spiritually, you, you're not going to be doing very well because on any given day, you can be like, well, I'm not doing, or I'm doing good, right? right? Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Tim Keller wrote this cool little book, The Blessing of Self-Forgetfulness. You know, I think that's what he's talking about. Don't take your own temperature too much, and don't take your church's temperature too much either because you're looking in the wrong place. But here's the deal. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day. The more thankful you are for your job, the more thankful you are for whatever relationships God has brought, the friendships or the the spouse God has brought into your life, the family, whatever it is, the more thankful you are, the more transformed you are by that. Do you see that? It like bubbles up and, and works in our heart. If you're watching online, start making lists of things you're thankful for like, and, and work that into your daily diet. It will change how you see things. Pray with me. And Lord, a big thank you that we were your enemies and you came to make us your friends. And you brought us together here around your, your word, around your table. And for that, we say thank you. Truly, there is none like you, Lord. Thank you so much. We give thanks to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.